Welcome back. Hey, uh, just a reminder again, um, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we have uh, copies on the table um, that is back to my left, your right. Um, Feel free to uh, transition at some point, grab one of those. Um, We're going to be reading a lot today. Um, And so uh, this is is for you. If you don't have a Bible, uh, man, please take one of those. We'd love for you to um, to have that. Um, Also, uh, yeah. Uh, hopefully you got one of uh, maybe these last week. If you're new here, if last week was your first time, maybe you picked one of these up on your way out. Um, these are some just some new ways that we are communicating with you about what it looks like for you to um, to take this, this next step of obedience, right? Um, whether that's, hey, I want to learn more about like what it means to follow after Jesus. Like what's it mean to be a Christian? We should chat about that. Um, also, baptism, uh, church membership, serving here. Um, For those of you who have been attending for some time and you're looking for a place to plug in and serve, um, grab one of these on your way out. Again, it's on the table back there. That's kind of the one-stop shop if you haven't realized it. Um, And uh, it has just a very simple link on the back that sends you to um, a place on our website where you can find some information on whatever you might be looking for. So, um, we would love to chat with you about that, but if you've got a jet after service and um, you would still like to, Feel free to grab that and uh, and check it out whenever you have um, an opportunity. So, um, hey, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and we are back at the cross. So, we missed, like, here's the deal. So, we missed, we've been in Mark for some time now, um, and we missed being at the resurrection in Mark by like a week, um, which is crazy. So, um, if you were here last week and you're not uh, you're not as familiar with the scriptures or um, kind of the story of Jesus's life, um, death, and resurrection, and you came and you're like, man, he's alive, and then this week we see him back on the cross. Don't be confused, okay? Um, we're just uh, a little bit behind in, in Mark's account, which is crazy. Because over the course of Holy Week, um, I spoke at, which is the week leading up to Easter, um, I spoke at the BCM on Tuesday from John's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. We had the Good Friday service here in which we spoke about the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. We had Easter Sunday last week, and now we're back again at the crucifixion. And so, man, we have been making a home at the cross which is a great place to make a home. And so um, that's where we're going to be this morning as we work towards a uh, or the conclusion of a 16-month series through Mark's gospel. We started the gospel of Mark on January 1st of 2017. We've had a handful of breaks kind of throughout, but um, we've got two weeks left. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. I'm in shock. It snuck up on us. It really would. You wouldn't think that it would after so long. But I looked it down and I'm like, man, we're going to be done soon. Like, what are we doing next? Uh, because we're almost done with Mark. But we've got two weeks. We're going to have a chunk of scripture this morning that we're going to be um, that we're going to be reading through. But it's helpful as we approach this passage and the conclusion of Mark's gospel to remember some things that we said as we began our time studying Mark, the Gospel of Mark, in 2017. Um, And so we said as we began, and to be perfectly honest with you, I wish that I had done a better job of, of emphasizing this throughout our time 
in Mark's gospel, but um, we can we can begin to write the ship now, right? And so better late than never. There's this massive question that Mark is exploring through his writings, and we really find that come out next week as we finish up uh, – Mark chapter 16 and Mark's account of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And the question is this, why are we afraid? Why are we afraid? Now, this is the question that we're going to see uh, really just left out there for us as we um, as we conclude our time in Mark's gospel um, next next week. We're left hanging as we're going to finish our time in chapter 16, verse 8, where many believe that the gospel originally um, ended. We're not going to be going through the long ending of Mark, and we'll talk more about that next week. But um, we're left with this, this question that just dangles out there for us as we finish up uh, Mark chapter 16. And that question is, why are we afraid? We see it explicitly, but it's been implicit throughout our time in the gospel of Mark. There are major evangelistic threads throughout Mark. That's one of the reasons that we said as we sat down and began to consider and pray about what the first book that this church would walk through would be, we said, Mark, right? Mark, it's got everything, man. I mean, it's got, it's got this, just this beautiful picture and portrait of the deity of Christ, his humanity. Um, it's, it's eclectic and it's artistic and it's, it's so beautiful to read through. And there is this major evangelistic push that we see encouraged throughout the book. There's this encouragement week after week after week through the gospel of Mark to live mission, right? As followers of Jesus, live mission. Now, we know this, right? Like, I'm not telling you if you've been following Jesus for any length of time or if you're at all familiar with, like, Christian subculture and, like, what the scriptures have to say. I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. But one thing that we are intimately aware of is that as Jesus' people, we struggle, Right, we struggle um, to 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 look at and to remain amazed and fixated on Jesus. Our minds and hearts are oftentimes distracted, and as we observe difficulty and suffering in this world, the mission that Jesus has both given His people and empowered His people for becomes more and more difficult. This morning, we see at the cross this major point of internal conflict that positions us to answer. The question, why are we afraid? Why do we struggle? Why is it so difficult for us to live evangelistically and share the news, the greatest news that has ever been spoken into creation, that our king is alive after he gave his life in order to ransom us from our death and sin? Why do we struggle with that? You wouldn't think that it would be so difficult, but it is. And one of the reasons that it is, I think, that we're confronted with by way of this portion, the crucifixion of Jesus from Mark's account, is because we understand that there is oftentimes great difficulty associated with the Christian life, right? I just spoke for a long time, and I just realized it, and so let's catch our breath for just a, for just a moment. We see in this portion of Mark chapter 14 and 15, this magnification of the kindness of God. 
which is what we need, right? When we talk about why do we struggle, why is it so difficult, what we need to be reminded of again and again and again is the sufficiency of Christ and the kindness of our King, the kindness of our Creator. It enables us to to fixate our needy and weary hearts on Jesus and His great sacrifice for you and His great sacrifice for me. We need this. And so I kind of, but not really, sorry, hashtag. Not sorry, apologize that we're back here again, but man, this is a great place for us to be, right? Providentially, the week after Easter, we find ourselves right back at the cross. Thus is the Christian life, okay? And so, as we approach this, this passage this morning, I think that um, there are some few, a few things that would, we would do well to, to, to realize as we um, come into our, our time. At the cross, we see what the German reformer Martin Luther referred to as the great exchange. The great exchange. And you say, well, what do you mean by this? Or what did he mean by this? And I think that what he meant by this is that at the cross, we see Jesus take the punishment of sinners so that sinners could receive his reward. That's the exchange that takes place. As as Christ substitutes himself in our place through the cross and the events that lead us there, we are confronted with the cost of our sin. Are we aware of what our sin costs? Are we aware what it costs to rescue us and to redeem us? We see what it costs at the cross. We see the goodness, love, and commitment of God to rescue a people. And we're going to talk about why he does this and the result of this. As we come through Mark this morning, at at the cross, we see what grace looks like. If you're at all familiar with what grace looks like, we see it at the cross. We see what grace looks like. We, as God's people, as we seek to live lives that that both stand in, in worship and adoration of our gracious King. We see what it looks like at the cross. When we talk about being a people transformed by grace to then live grace and extend grace to other people, and we want to know what does that look like, we see it at the cross. What does it look like to live lives of grace? What does it look like to to extend grace to other people, to live out the Christian life as a way of, of glorifying God? We see it at the cross. At the cross, we see what grace looks like. At the cross, we see a grace that saves us. At the cross, we see an informing grace. What do you mean by that? Well, because at the cross, we really gain greater insight and understanding as to who God is. The cross informs our understanding of who God is. Finally, we we see what he desires from his people by his power. John Stott, the great Anglican pastor, wrote in one of my most favorite books. We love books here, right? We love this book the most, but we also love other books. And we like to connect you guys with good resources when we can. And John Stott published a book years and years and years ago entitled The Cross of Christ. And if it's not on your bookshelf, I would encourage you to Amazon it and like quick click, like buy that thing and have it in a couple of days and start reading it. It's incredible. He says this, this is somewhat of a summarization, but you're going to get the, the picture. God could have just abandoned us to our fate. And he would have been totally justified in doing so. He could have left us alone to reap the fruits of wrongdoing and to perish in our sins. It's what we we deserved. But he didn't. 
He didn't because he loved us. He came after us in Christ. He pursued us even to the desolate anguish of the cross where he bore our sins, guilt, judgment, and death. And listen to what he says here. This is practical. This is like hands and feet things for you and I as we come into our our passage this morning. It takes a hard and stony heart to remain unmoved by love like that. The love that we see displayed at the cross by way of the crucifixion of our king is a love that, that totally blows our minds. It's like nothing that we've ever seen before. It's like nothing that we've ever experienced before. And it's almost, upon initial reading, it seems as though it's too good to be true. Wait, are you kidding me? In light of who who I understand myself to be, the fallenness of man and the depravity that resides within, what do I mean by that? Sin? Right? That we're fallen, that we're sinful, that we're rebellious? You're telling me that God pursues And substitutes and atones for me that he rescues me? Yes. And it's a love that totally transforms everything. It totally transforms everything. The cross of Christ moves us. The cross of Christ transfers us from light, from darkness into light, from death into life. And it transforms us into the image of of Jesus. And so what are we going to see this morning as we bite off a hunk of Mark chapter 14 and 15? In Jesus, we see a faithful witness, a selfless servant, and a love for sinners. Let me say that one more time. In Jesus, we see a faithful witness, a selfless servant, And a love for sinners. Some of you guys are looking down at your clock and you're going, man, we haven't even read the passage yet. We're going to be here all afternoon. We're not. I promise you, a majority of our time is actually going to be spent reading the passage that we have this morning because it is a large one. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53, and we're going to go through chapter 15. So we're reading the last portion of Mark 14, and then we're reading all of Mark chapter 15. We're going to make a few observations from the text, and then we're going to look at at seven ways in which we see Jesus is better. And again, don't be afraid. (laughs) We're not going to be here all afternoon, I assure you. Let's read from Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. We last left with a young John Mark running naked through the garden. Jesus has been seized. And we said, as we concluded our time two weeks ago in verses 51 and 52 of Mark 14, that in John Mark, we see a, a physical representation of our spiritual condition. Right? He, there, is, there is nakedness, there is shame, there is fleeing, he's running away, right? And we get this picture of what you and I look like in a natural spiritual condition. Naked and ashamed, running from God. That's what we look like. And so that's where we last left. And so how is Jesus going to respond to uh, the events that are to transpire? Let's look there, beginning in verse 53. This is God's word. It's the most perfect part of our service today. And they led Jesus to the high priest. 
And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, if you remember, Jesus, in our time together two weeks ago, told Peter that he would deny him. That he would deny him before the rooster crowed. To which Peter responded, no way, no how, it's not happening. That's helpful as we come into verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. He's speaking of of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. No kidding, right? They had no idea what he was even talking about. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men may testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said to him, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus, but he denied it, saying, I neither know know, nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, you For you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consolation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. 
Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do what he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. There is plenty of culpability to go around is one thing that we notice through this portion. Just a side note, chief priests, crowd, plenty of culpability to go around. There's a lot of sin that we see. Verse 12. And Pilate said again, uh, again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him, mocking him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in in from the country. The father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him. Wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthete, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. 
And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and the younger and uh, 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 the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in uh, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Hey, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for your spirit who opens our eyes and our hearts to understand um, that which has been recorded um, and that which has been preserved. We pray again that you would glorify yourself in our time together, that you would transform our hearts and our minds, that you would transform our perceptions and that we would be led into a posture of humility and adoration before you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, we've got some work to do. We've got some work to do. I want us to first consider Jesus's witness in chapter 14, verses 53 through 72. There's this, there's this emphasis on, there's this, there's, this, uh, there's this drawing out of the faithful witness of Jesus in comparison with humanity's failure. Right, there's this picture of, of the seizure of Jesus that is painted for us by Mark in incredible detail. And among the details, we see a steady stream of false witnesses presented before the council to speak about who Jesus is and about what he has done. We see Jesus bearing a, a faithful witness concerning himself, right, his identity and his person as one who is committed to the plan of the Father to redeem and rescue sinners. On the other hand, we see a grave injustice from those who are participating in bringing these charges against Jesus. In verses 53 through 65, again, we have a large section today. And so there's some, a few specific things that we're going to narrow in on. But one of the things that we notice is that there is a lot of confusion and there is a lot of conflict. 
We see that as these individuals have been gathered to bear testimony and witness to the the breaking of the law, right? These are air quotes, right? Because that's what we're talking about here. Jesus is is, is innocent. He has done nothing wrong, and that's going to continue to be drawn out throughout throughout Mark's account. But as as the people are gathered together to bear false witness against Jesus and what he has done, we find that they can't agree on what he had done or said. And in turn, we see the standard or or perhaps the the groundwork being laid for this continued injustice that Jesus is experiencing from the people in terms of their desire to see his his demise, right? Does this make sense so far? are Are we following along here? In Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 61, we see the high priest ask him, Are you the Christ? the Son, the Blessed. And in verse 62, Jesus says to him, I am, and you will see. Now this is really important. We see what Jesus is is doing here in connecting Old Testament prophecy to that which is taking place here and now and that which is to take place in the future. Hang with me for for just a second. Jesus said to him, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus, he answers the question that is presented to him by those present. And in doing so, he marries what we see in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110 verse 1. Now, make note of those because, again, we've got some ground to cover and so we're not going to go all the way back. But the imagery that Jesus is talking about here in terms of the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power is that which was observed by Daniel and spoken of to the people who had existed in exile and were in search of freedom and hope and salvation. And Daniel says to the people, he prophesies about this one that would come and ultimately rescue the people. Right, from, from greater bondage, from greater oppression than they had experienced in, in Egypt, than they had experienced in Babylon, that there was one who was going to come and he was going to, to rescue them from the greatest oppressor, sin and death. And here, as this question is presented to Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, inciting from Daniel 7 and Psalm 110.1, Jesus is essentially saying, I am the Messiah. Right? I am the one. I am the rescuer. I am the redeemer. I am the Son of God. In a passage in which we see again and again and again confusion and chaos and denial from Christ with the cross before him, we see a faithful witness contrasted with the denial of Peter. Three times he denies Jesus. We see Christ over the course of the second part of Mark chapter 14 and on into chapter 15 remain committed, remain faithful in the most stressful of circumstances. 
We see Christ remain faithful and we see him remain committed in the most unjust of circumstances, which we're going to get to and discuss right now as we look at not only Jesus's witness, but a selfless servant as we observe Jesus's suffering. As this, as this, as this court, just this laughing stock of a trial is taking place, as Jesus is shuffled around before different people to answer different questions, we see Jesus remain silent in his questioning. Why does that stand out? Is that important? Like, is that valuable for us as we work through the crucifixion of Christ? I think that it is, especially given some of the things that we've seen emphasized up until this point. Given Jesus' innocence from any wrongdoing, this is shocking. The silence of Jesus in light of the, 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 the injustice that is being experienced right now, given that he has done nothing wrong, produces within us a sense of, of awe. It's, it's shocking, only to be made all the more so, given the miscarriage of justice within the system that's taking place. So, so I want to quote from one commentator quickly who who does a really stellar job at unpacking the differences or or the different areas of misjustice that we see going on within the trial of Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, it's difficult to count up all the violations of Jewish law. Of all, like, as we just observed these few verses, all of the, all of the, uh, the, the, the violations of Jewish law that are taking place as Jesus is tried and ultimately crucified are difficult for us to even keep track of. For example, he says, in capital cases like Jesus's, right, those that might lead to, to death, those in which the penalty is death. Trials at night were forbidden. In cases where a guilty verdict was reached, a second day and session were required to ensure a fair trial. Such a trial should not, uh, should not convene on a Sabbath or festival. In addition, a charge of blasphemy, now this is interesting, could not be uh, sustained unless the defendant cursed God's name. And then the penalty was to be death by stoning, not crucifixion. In Jesus' case, no formal meeting of the Sanhedrin ever took place in the temple which was the proper location for a trial, nor was Jesus provided or even offered an attorney. It's incredible as we step back and we consider the innocence of Christ alongside this gross miscarriage of injustice that takes place that Jesus would remain silent. But again, all of this is prophesied about. All of this is spoken of beforehand. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 speaks of the suffering servant. And what one could expect from him. Listen to what Isaiah writes. He says of the suffering servant that he was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet what? We're probably, some of us are probably familiar with this. He opened not his mouth. Instead, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before her shears is silent, so too he opens not his mouth. 
And so we, we read this and we consider the injustice that's taking place in terms of what is proper protocol for God's people as it pertains to legal issues. Only we have to be reminded, don't we, that, that all of this is in accordance with God's sovereign and providential plan. That he is working something incredible here. That he's, he's doing something incredible here. Something that has been planned and set in stone. Going on back into eternity past. We see Jesus' silent suffering. He embraces that which is before him. He's already committed himself, Right? Like he's already committed himself in the garden. He has, he has set his mind and he has set his, his track on this trajectory. We see Jesus' suffering. He remains silent in his questioning. In addition, we see in chapter 15, verses 6 through 14, Jesus' substitution. Go there with me. It says this, Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. This is the scene in which we see uh, Pilate say, Okay, it's typical for us to release release a, a criminal. And so are we to release Barabbas or are we to release Jesus? He, he says that he, he perceived that all that was taking place was a result of envy from the chief priests, from the religious leaders. And so let's take it before the people. Only we see the religious leaders begin to, begin to ensue the people, right? Ensue a, a riot of sorts, crying out and calling out for the crucifixion of Jesus. They say that they would rather have Barabbas set free than Jesus, they would rather have the one who had, been, who had been placed in prison, whose guilt was apparent, embraced, known, set free, than Jesus, to whom we see a number of times, on a number of occasions through this passage, individuals struggling even to understand what he had done to warrant any type of trial at all, not much less capital punishment trials. Verse 14 of Mark chapter 15, Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Crucify him! What does this have to do with Jesus' substitution? What does this have to do with Jesus' substitution in the place of sinners? Paul writes of this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, when he says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So let's get this straight. Humanity, here, follow me along here. Humanity has rebelled from the good and perfect law and instruction of God. And in order to rescue a rebellious people who had broken God's perfect law, Jesus submits himself to this gross miscarriage of justice in terms of obedience to the law. He places himself under the unjust practices of those present in order to fulfill the perfectly just and righteous plan of God as his wrath is poured out 
And sinners find a means to salvation. Again, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What we see through the trial of Jesus is a most accurate picture of his substitution. Right? The, the good and righteous king takes the place of the wicked, granting grace and freedom to the undeserving. Let me say that one more time because it's made clear for us. As we look at Barabbas and the freedom that he now enjoys as Jesus has taken his place, we see... The good and righteous king. Take the place of the wicked, granting grace and freedom to the undeserving. He grants his reward while taking our pain and shame. Do we see this? This is what substitution is. It's one of our most favorite words. Christ for us. Christ in our place, so that we as sinners, fallen, might receive his righteous reward. It's not what we have done. The only thing that we bring to the table is our need. The only thing that we bring to the table is our sin. And Christ submits himself to the perfect plan of the Father. As these men, these evil men, become the means by which his plan and purpose begins to unfold in this most unique way. And so we see Jesus remain silent. We see his substitution and we see his taking upon himself our pain and our shame. In chapter 15, verse 16, we see Jesus is delivered over to be crucified. In chapter 15, verse 17, we see that Jesus has a crown of thorns placed upon his head. And he is mocked in verse 18. And he is struck and spit on in verse 19. And in Mark chapter 15, verse 20, he is led out to be crucified. He's led out to be crucified as a display of the Father's great love for sinners. Jesus is led out of town to be crucified as a display of God's great love for sinners and a, and a way, get this, this is so important, This is so important. I heard not long ago from from Albert Moeller, who's the president of uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He said this. He was talking about the song, Jesus Loves Me. Right? You guys familiar with the song? Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Right? The simplicity, right? The simplicity of the song. But one thing that he brought out and that he emphasized was the, the importance of understanding That Jesus loves us and Jesus saves us. 
Right? Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. We need to know and we need to understand that Jesus loves and that Jesus saves as he embraces our punishment and our guilt and our shame from the Father in order that his perfect justice might be satisfied and that we sinners might be set free and redeemed, rescued from punishment and death and hell and ushered into eternal fellowship with God. We see Jesus crucified to save in chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. We see Jesus forsaken in verses 33 through 41. And we see Jesus buried in death. All for God's glory and the good of others in verses 42 through 47. D.A. Carson famously said this. If you want to know what judgment looks like, go to the cross. Right, if you want to know what, what our rebellion, the same rebellion that we see uh, our, our, our older brother Adam guilty of all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. If we want to know what, what judgment looks like, perfect, righteous, just judgment and justice, then we can go to the cross. But he adds this portion. This is so important. If you want to know what love looks like, go to the cross. Why is the cross so important to us? Right? Like why is the cross so, so valuable? Why is it this, 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 this symbol right? that we as, as Christians, that the Christian faith has chosen to embrace? I'll never forget, I can't remember who it was, but I, I, was, I was reading it at one point, this, um, basically this, this uh, presentation of the various symbols that could have been taken by the first Christians in order to display uh, their connection to Christ. Think about the different things that we see, even that we see through Mark's gospel. We see, um, you know, a fish, right? You can choose a fish. You could choose, um, I don't know, uh, like a lamb, right? A lamb, maybe we could do that. Start thinking a little bit more modern. Maybe you go light bulb, right? Maybe we need to go through this rebranding and go with the light bulb illustration, right? The light of the world. But that's not it, right? Like it was, it was the cross. It was the cross of Christ where we see what judgment looks like and where we see what love, perfect love looks like. We're at the cross this morning and we need to come back here all the time. Because we've been confronted with this through this passage with our need. We said earlier on, even as I was reading through, we talked about the culpability, how we've got chief priests and elders, right? We've got, uh, we've got the people, we've got the followers of Jesus. Like we've got enough sin and rebellion to go around. There is this great display of need. And so the question for you and I is this, and I don't know that we do this very often as we, as we read and, and interact with God's word. Do we oftentimes place ourselves in the position of the hero as we read through the scriptures or do we understand ourselves? as being those in great need, right? Like where, where, do, where are we as we read through here? Are we confronted? Are you confronted? I know I'm confronted with my tendency to, to, to leave, to flee, to run. What we see through the cross of Christ is God's commitment to pursue after a rebellious people. What we see through the cross of Christ is God's commitment to pursue after, to save a rebellious people. And it came at an incredible cost. Are we aware of that? 
right? Are we, are we stepping back, right? Are we, even now, like the, 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 the table is set before us and we see the broken body of Christ and we see this, this juice, right, that is representative of his spilled blood for you and I, this, these new co- this new covenant, right? Like, do we get that? Do we see that? Man, when we do, that transforms our hearts. Right? That changes. That changes everything. Right? It changes the way that we interact with people. It changes the way that we approach God. It changes the joy that we have in seasons of hardship and, and great celebration. Why? Man, the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ, God's great love for sinners. We see Jesus' witness. We see Jesus' suffering as the selfless servant. We see Jesus' love. And I want us to close, and this is going to be quick. This is our conclusion. Seven ways that Jesus is better through his trial, suffering, and death. Are you ready for this? Here we go. Notes. If you take notes, write these things down. Maybe it's this. Maybe you're not a pen and paper. You're a, you're a notes on your phone kind of guy. Feel free. Number one, Jesus or Peter, Peter follows at a distance while Jesus sticks close. All right, Peter, even as we come into this, this passage this morning, we see, we see Peter following Jesus at a distance. While we see Jesus, we see Jesus sticking close to sinners. Proverbs 1 verse 24 speaks of a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And what I'm here to tell you this morning is that this is Jesus. That Jesus is the better older brother. In Peter, we see a similar position as Adam in the first garden. We see this distance. And we see that distance, in this case, results in sin. The denial of Christ to a little girl. (laughs) Right? Did you guys catch that? Like this meek little girl, right? And Peter's like, oh no. As a fellowship, as a church, we make a really big deal about drawing close to Jesus. And there's a few ways that we do that. We talk about knowing him in the word, right? Knowing God in his word. We look to the word as the ultimate and final authority on all things. We look to the word to inform our understanding of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And now what he is doing over the course of redemptive history from this point on into the end. We know him in the word. We place a great emphasis on gathering with God's people. Right? Here's, here's the deal. If, you're, if, you're, if this is your first time at Christ the King, here's kind of how we function. Okay, We do not have like a ton of programs that we try to connect you with and have you engaged as a part of throughout the week, right? We, we just don't function that way, but we do place great emphasis on the Sunday morning gathering. Now, that's not all that there is, but we do place great emphasis on that. Why? Why do we place this emphasis on gathering together with God's people? Well, because distance, if you're anything like me, oftentimes results in sin. We see it in this passage, don't we? We see Peter following at a distance, and as the distance increases, so too does said sin, this denial of Christ. Man, we place great emphasis on knowing him in his word, gathering with his people, because we know that we need it. Our hearts need it. Our souls need it. Otherwise, there is a tendency that we, that we, venture, into, that we venture into sin. 
So Peter follows at a distance, whereas Jesus sticks close. Peter cowers and shrinks back when addressed by the servant girl, whereas Jesus remains steadfast and committed despite the silence of his father. And so we're observing Christ upon the cross at this point, in which we see Jesus walking willingly into the silence so that, get this, we could hear God speak. Did you get that? We see Jesus walk willingly into the silence so that we, those who have been separated from God, might be able to hear him speak. Peter three times denies Jesus, whereas God tells us that he will embrace us through the work of Christ. Jesus would, following his resurrection, pursue rejecting Peter, and he would restore him. And so what do we need to know about the way Jesus does things in light of this, of this circumstance that brings proud, denying Peter to tears? We need to know a few things. We need to know that Jesus continues to pursue the wayward and restore them to God. Jesus continues to pursue the wayward and restore them to God. We need to know that Jesus continues to pursue the needy and the broken. We need to know that Jesus continues to pursue sinners today. That the Spirit opens eyes to the kindness of God and leads us unto repentance. Do you guys get this? Now, do you guys get this? Really? Like, this is what Jesus does. This is who Jesus is. Jesus takes the crown of death, pain, and suffering so that we might receive his crown of righteousness. Do you get that? He takes the crown that, that, we, that we earned, right? that we deserved, and in some cases even desire because we are that sick and twisted sometimes. And he gives us and he gives us his crown of righteousness. And then here's the kicker. Right? Here's the kicker. The great kicker of them all, right? Is that we spend the rest of our lives trying to give it back to him. Does that make sense? Like he gives us his righteousness. And then we, we're, we're just, we're giving it back. I'm giving it all to you. Everything that I have is to you. Everything that I have is for you. This is what it looks like to follow after Jesus. We see in this passage, the council bind Jesus in chapter 15, verse 1, at the cross. And through the resurrection, we see Jesus bind the sting of death and the claims of the enemy to our rebellious souls. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Whereas humanity is often cruel, Jesus is compassionate and merciful. Jesus knows the rejection of the Father so that we could know his sweet embrace. Jesus' death results in tangible, physical, observable phenomenon. We see that as his life is surrendered, as he, as he gives it up, that the curtain that has historically separated the people of God from his presence is torn, signifying the fulfillment 
of John chapter 4 in this conversation with a Samaritan woman. God enjoyed, worshipped in spirit and in truth. In Jesus, we see a faithful witness. We see a selfless servant and we see a love for sinners. And so how do we respond? What's the intended response to this passage as we close our time out this morning? I love what John Piper has to say when he says this. Here's the response. Wake up. (laughs) Okay, here it is. Wake up. Wake up to what Jesus has done for you so that you start loving him with an appropriate affection and humility. What do we need to do? I mean, we just we read we just read through like half of Mark chapter 14 and all of Mark chapter 15. And there is a lot there. What do we do? Man, we gaze. Right. We gaze upon our king. We gaze upon our king. And we pray, we ask the Lord to stir our hearts and affections for what he has done so that we might now begin to love him with an appropriate affection and humility. We live lives of worship. This is it, right? This is it. Sometimes, again, sometimes we say, hey, what do we do with this passage? What do we encourage towards? Well, like pray more, sin less. Yeah, absolutely. Here's what we're encouraged to through this passage. Observance of God's great love for sinners and his commitment to their redemption. We cast ourselves, we cast our lives on Christ, realizing and experiencing now all of these resurrection benefits in this life and the life to come. Corporally and individually, we behold the wondrous mystery. We're going to sing that song in just a minute. We behold the wondrous mystery of the cross of Jesus, the price of our redemption, and this foretaste to fellowship with God that we are called into through his blood. That's how we respond. That's how we respond to the crucifixion of Jesus. And so as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, let us not approach the table in some type of proud, passive, arrogant posture. But let's approach the table with joy-filled hearts and humble souls. Why? Well, because we have been redeemed at great cost. We have been redeemed at great great price. And so as we approach this table and we reflect back on what Jesus has done in order to rescue us from our sins, satisfying the wrath of God, We consider how that informs the way we live, how we worship, how we sing, how we we read, how we love, how we extend grace and faithfulness and forgiveness in this life, anticipating the life to come. 